Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in! Today we are joined by Catherine Henna. Catherine is a research fellow at the Regulatory Institutions Network, a research center housed at the Australian National University, and also is a fellow of the Research School of Asia and the Pacific. Catherine joins us today to talk about her article, The Science of Fair Play in Sport, Gender and the Politics of Testing, which will appear in the forthcoming issue of Science, Journal of Women and Culture and Society. We discuss the shifting models of sex testing used by the International Olympic Committee, efforts to enforce the male-female binary, and the assumptions about fair play and the natural body. Hi, Kate. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, Hi, Kyle. Thanks so much for having me. Perhaps we could start by you explaining the different types of testing that has been used by the International Olympic Committee in the past to determine the sex of women athletes. Right. It's been a long genealogy, given that it's been a pretty short history of testing. There's been speculation around female athletes. I mean, you could argue since the beginning of the Olympics, Mm -hmm. which Pierre de Coubertin, the founder of the Olympics, had argued that women should never participate in sport. So formal testing began in and around the 1950s when the IAAF, which is the governing body of athletics, actually did physical examinations of women's genitals to indicate whether or not they were women. Was that performed by, by doctors or the actual committee? Yeah, by, by doctors. Okay. By, or at least to our knowledge, we assume it's doctors, I should say. There's not the best documentation of that practice. Okay. But it seems to suggest that it was certainly doctors. In response to that, um, in the 1968, the International Olympic Committee Medical Commission actually established a test where women would not feel so physically scrutinized um, and violated, or at least that was the impetus for it. So what they would do is they'd do a buccal smear to actually test gender and do an analysis that way. Those kinds of analyses have shifted um, from a bar body test um, then to a chromosomal test, so basically looking for XY. Um, versus XX. Mm-hmm. The problem with those sets of tests is they've been, we found inconsistencies. And so in response to some inconsistencies that arose in the 1996 Olympics around the chromosomal tests, um, oh, I should say, yeah, 1991, they actually changed the test. I'm sorry. Okay. 1991, they changed the test. And then consistencies occurred again in 1996. And from there, they basically started doing it selectively until most recently they've changed the rules again in 2011 to basically test levels of testosterone. Why the shift from the last model of testing to the current model of focusing on testosterone? Well, what they've in, well, they haven't said the exact reasons were because the Castor Semenya scandal, um, Castor Semenya being the South African runner who actually was not participating in the sport for, for 11 months because they were reevaluating her case to see whether or not she complied or should be um, competing in women's sport. Um, it's a huge scandal that many people have written about, um, and it's part of my article, but others such as Cheryl Cookie have written about it in other ways um, and done really excellent work on some of the issues around why her case is unique 
And because there weren't clear guidelines, the IRC Medical Commission has argued, um, that's why the controversy has occurred. Mm -hmm. And so they thought the best way to do it um, was to actually establish a testosterone threshold in which the goal is if women are above that threshold, they would not be allowed to compete in women's sport, that threshold being very high. Mm -hmm. um, the catch with that is though, is not everyone's tested. So it's actually based on a little bit of suspicion. Um, so if someone looks to be a bit more masculine than other competitors or more muscular or has evident markers of maybe more testosterone, um, that person could be tested whereas others won't be. And so a lot of scholars have argued that that presumption that testosterone equals better athletic performance is a pretty small correlation and really unsubstantiated as the only defining marker of athletic performance. So the cho so they choose which athletes to test and, it, and it's based almost on, on how people perform normative gender? Is it, would that be accurate to I mean, that's say? one of the arguments I've made. So the, the problem with this is, if we look at the Castor Semenya case, for example, in 2009, when she was scrutinized, um, her performance did improve by seven seconds, which is really significant for an 800-meter sprint. However, at that time, she had a new coach, new training facilities, and she was 18 years old. People were going to make big gains. Um, however, she did have aesthetic markers that did make her look more muscular than perhaps other athletes. And so the argument is that she was not just scrutinized because of her performance, but because people found that she looked too much like a man. And has the, the International Olympic Committee discussed how it would be possible for someone to pass, say, the test that they used in the early 90s and be deemed to be a female competitor, and then in the current model they would be deemed male or it could go vice versa right that's a really that's a really good point and a really good question i try to highlight some of those inconsistencies so under one test something appears abnormal it can be chromosomal it can be something else um, and under the other that criteria doesn't apply anymore so arguably a lot of women under the chromosomal tests would have quote unquote passed under the visual examinations so what the IOC has actually done publicly is acknowledge that earlier tests have been flawed. This is perhaps the best way of going about it, um, having this particular threshold, because if women, presumably if they do, are, are found to exceed that threshold, presumably they can be given hormonal therapies to drop below it, which is another, I would argue, really problematic issue, right? If we're having naturally, natural athletes taking doping substances to get below a threshold when we have other rules that say doping is not something we want to encourage in sport there's obviously a contradiction going on right there yeah so no so no hormonal enhancement unless it's designed to lower testosterone and then it's mandated and women <laughs> yeah so how did actually that brings up another question i had how are the tests similar uh to the what male athletes have to undergo there's a little bit more, and I talk about this in the article as well, about how other forms um, and conditions could occur among men that may or may not inhibit performance that we don't actually test for. So men aren't subject to gender verification. If someone is a transgender man, they presumably could undergo specific requirements. So we have the Stockholm consensus that specifically allocates 
the rules around transgender participation of either men's and women's events. But that's probably the only case where a male athlete's going to be scrutinized. Could you say a little bit more about how transgender athletes are treated or what the rules around participation are? Because it, in, it seems like the effort's really made to enforce this very strict binary of this is what a male is and this is what a female is. Right, no, that's a great question. And this, there's a document called the Stockholm Consensus, which was um, established in 2003. And this governs international bodies, sporting bodies in the Olympics. And that document very clearly states some criteria. And those criteria are legal recognition of someone's gender as such that they identify within that sport, two years um, post-sex reassignment surgery, and then the third criteria is a little bit more vague, all potential forms of enhancement or advantage that came from that previous gender seem to be nullified. And usually that's just a matter of saying that I'm two, two, two years more post-op and therefore I've made these other additional, you know, I've undergone these other kinds of hormonal therapy as a result. What's interesting now, right at this very moment, there's a transgender woman who participates in CrossFit named Chloe Johnson, who's actually sued CrossFit to allow her to participate as a woman because CrossFit headquarters, and I don't know if a lot of um, listeners know CrossFit, CrossFit is a basically a weightlifting competition with other kinds of challenging athletic events with it, but it does have substantial prize money attached to it at the higher levels. And so she's arguing that CrossFit has violated her civil rights as a woman in the state of California by not allowing her to participate in her recognized gender or events in her recognized gender. CrossFit's response, however, um, began as something professional, but reports say that it actually got very personal and attacks, accusing her of not understanding basic biology and things like that even though the Stockholm consensus has been on the books for a very long time. So even though we have these international rules, they don't necessarily trickle down to all sports. And have other, have other sports generally followed the idea that testosterone is the, is the measure that should be used, or that, that varies also by sport? That's an interesting point, actually. I think there's a common slippage where we assume testosterone, because it's considered a male hormone, there must be always the defining attribute of an athlete. There's no doubt that when people train, men or women, for sports, when they train in certain ways, their testosterone levels go up. So most female athletes have higher testosterone levels than they were born with because they train. But there's no clear evidence that suggests the best people in their respective sports have more testosterone than other people that they compete against. So testosterone may be performance enhancing, but it's not necessarily the, the defining feature. But I do believe that there are some slippages around that. Yeah, and it's, it's fascinating to see how, both in the article and what you're saying now, that rather than, with as we go through this progression of tests, rather than the committee beginning to acknowledge that it's difficult to enforce a strict binary, the solution seems to be, we just need a better test. Right, exactly. And we have all this really fantastic feminist and queer research in this area, let's bring it to bear on not only the historical primary documents that I use in the article, but also contemporary debates around these issues and their linkages to doping regulation, I would argue, and really talk about how gender, our presumption of binary gender, gets mapped on in multiple ways, right? It's not just the testing, right? It's not just the way we conceive performance enhancement. It comes out at every single level. 
and it really produces these inconsistencies that the tests actually show us, right? With each test, we see where these slippages occur, yet we still want to refine this, find a solution with a test. And this is one of the things I found most interesting. There was this underlying belief that sex testing enforces the idea of fair play or the natural body. And these right. were connections that you were rather, rather critical of. So I was wondering how that argument is made that sex t testing relates to the natural body and fair play, and then why you're critical of that. Right. And this is, and this is where gendered ideologies end up mapping on to other kinds of Olympic ideologies that become tacitly accepted when we watch sport in a lot of cases. So the argument of fair play, and a lot of listeners are probably familiar with it, fair play is we want a level playing field, right? We want to make sure, for example, with anti-doping regulation, that everyone is not artificially enhanced, right? We want to presume that a level, field, level playing field can be achieved if people don't take drugs. Um, but if we think through that critically, we see a lot of other kinds of differences between competitors, especially when we consider it globally, right? Someone from Australia has different resources than someone in the United States that has different resources in some other parts of Latin America or Africa. And in different parts of those places, they have different resources. People have different biological traits. People have different um, nutritional um, intake. People have different coaches. People have access to lots of different kinds of technologies. So this notion that fair play can be determined by a simple test, whether it's for drugs or, as we say, around gender, uh, our discussion around gender, it kind of misses the broader point that there's never going to be a level playing field um, in that way that it's desired. And that idea of the level playing field as something between two natural competitors is something that was actually previously really upheld under original Olympic principles. So the notion of Olympism, um, which is a foundational principle of the Olympic movement, is this notion that we're going to celebrate physical culture and activity in its quote-unquote purest form. And for de Coubertin, that purest form was two, and I, I should say very explicitly, male bodies who were unenhanced, not training, going out and being competitors for the spirit of camaraderie. And that obviously has changed quite a bit as sport has become professionalized as more technologies have gone into sport to enhance bodies in sport. Um, and we can really argue that, you know, all bodies are cyborg bodies, but in particular, athletes are made. They're not inherent, right? We train, we do things to our bodies in different ways to make sure we're enhanced for sport. And so this idea that a natural body is what's, you know, the ideal in sport is, is really artificial. So when people use the term amateurism, was that originally a coded word for signifying the natural body? That was certainly part of it. So amateurism and a lot of sport historians have done some really great work about really showing how amateurism, which was upheld as this kind of pure value, was really a form of class gatekeeping. So people under amateurism weren't supposed to be paid. Um, they were just supposed to participate in sport out of the joy of participating in sport. Um, and what that did in practice was really prevent people um, who otherwise could not afford to participate in sport without being paid from participating in those kinds of competitions. And so the Olympics was really supposed to be a celebration of an amateur sport. But as sport started to professionalize in the mid-20th century, 
that kind of false ideal, you could argue, really started to come apart. Why is it that sex testing is the is the thing that really goes against fair play rather than someone being seven feet tall and another person be five and a half feet tall? <laughs> right, right. So actually, um, quite a few scholars have argued maybe we should just not gender segregate sport, but find other ways of segregating um, competition. So around body weight, around other kinds of physical attributes that are relevant to the sport. And that in that ways, we can maybe encourage different kinds of competition. I mean, if we look at weight classes in particular sports, for example, that's not a way of equalizing competition. Um, and we've seen that in you know, wrestling and other kinds of sports. But we also see it in rugby union, some lower level rugby union competitions. For example, in New Zealand, they have an under 80 kg competition now as a way of giving smaller athletes an opportunity to compete, whereas they may not um, be able to against bigger athletes. So we've seen it in other spaces. Um, I don't know if I'm answering your question at the moment now that I think about it. So in the under 80 kilogram rugby leagues that you spoke of, is this simply for men competing, or um, is this an example where the it's an idea of fair play open to people of any sex? Right. It still falls in the boundaries that it's a men's only competition. But it is interesting to think about. So within a men's competition, certain authorities and other athletes have recognized that there's a significant size differential in which bigger bodies tend to be privileged and smaller bodies in some cases either are not privileged or are more prone to injury because they're competing against people who are of much larger size. So, and it's an example that within the competition, they framed it as fair play, yet because it's gender segregated, we don't see how it could apply to other spaces. And I think we could look at different sports and look at different rules where, you know, maybe we could surpass gender segregation and actually look at alternative forms of organizing competition. So as academics, we're often very good at critiquing and highlighting, highlighting contradictions, but it's rare that we make suggestions or say what should be done. But I am curious, uh, is that something that you would prescribe if we do accept problematic nature of, of, of sex testing to look at other types of fair play and and get rid of all sex segregation in sport? So, I mean, that's a great question. I do support um, removing sex segregation in a lot of sports. Um, if we think about sex segregation in a lot of cases, you know, we are presuming in a lot of cases that women are inferior to men. However, doing that overnight is not going to happen. And then also we've got to think about we do live in a very gendered world, right? And sometimes, in a lot of cases, I would argue, as a girl who participated in a lot of boys' sports, it can be really damaging for young women to not participate with other young women. You know, For example, I grew up in a really small town, and there were very few opportunities for girls to play soccer, so I played on, on the boys' team. And you know, being picked last all the time, being told you're not as good can be really damaging. Um, and it's probably why I gravitated to things like rugby union and mixed martial arts when I was in high school because I had a little bit of kind of aggression and anger. <laughs> but um, I think if we can have that conversation around why sports sex segregated and why we're doing these kinds of gatekeeping, we can really start to discuss some of the gendered implications and the kinds of you know other global inequalities that end up informing them. I mean. One of the other things that I try to do with the article is show, is highlight how different ideologies 
end up gatekeeping who is deemed to be a woman and who's not deemed to be a woman and how those ideologies end up informing who ends up testing as positive. So for example, during the Cold War, there was a very clear preoccupation with, for lack of a better word, catching Soviet athletes or East German athletes who to Western onlookers looked very unfeminine when really they were just very, very different. And a lot of them were being systematically subjected to you know, forms of doping that they either didn't know about it or didn't fully understand. So they were just as much victims in this system, uh, not so much the villains that they were portrayed in, in in Western media. And then if we look in the 1980s, we see a lot of African-American women being scrutinized in ways that other people aren't. Um, and today we could argue a lot of women from the global South are being scrutinized around gender in ways that, you know, women from the global North aren't. And so really the goal as an academic for me, I think, is to really foster these conversations, help people discuss them. And then I also talk to the International Olympic Committee members when available about some of the contradictions that occur. Um, I won't share any names with whom um, I've spoken with, um, but, you know, some people are more open than others. And I think that's also a valuable lesson for us to know um, as academics is that these are huge institutions. The International Olympic Committee has been around for a very long time. It has a lot of different people in it, and they all have very different perspectives on what rules get posed. And so they're not these uniform entities. They are people. Um, and I think they, in some cases, they're very open to having these discussions and finding ways to make changes. Unfortunately, they don't always happen overnight. I thought we should end by mentioning that you have a book coming out soon, and I believe it is titled Testing for Athlete Citizens, the Regulation of Doping in Sex and Sport. Uh, so how does that relate to what, we're dis what we discussed, or how does it build on some of these ideas? Yeah, no, that's, I mean, it, the piece that's in signs is definitely reformulated in a different way to fit the book. And so I, the goal with the book, which I should probably note is forthcoming with Rutgers University Press um, under the Critical um, Issues in Sport and Society series, which is co-edited by Michael Messner and Doug Hartman, one of the Society Pages is editors. That book really tries to look at global sport as a space where we can rethink citizenship more generally. So if we think about athletes, especially elite athletes, right, we have a transnational group of people who come from very different places, do very different things, but are all valued for their bodies. And as a result, they're subject to different forms of gatekeeping. Of, of which gender regulation and gender testing, gender verification testing is one of them, as is anti-doping rules, as are different forms of codes of conduct. So they're, because they're ex exceptional for their physical abilities, they're actually gatekeeped in different ways that everyday citizens aren't necessarily subject to. And if we trace some of those changes in those gatekeeping technologies, we really see a broader commentary of how things have changed since the mid-1960s, for example, to the contemporary moment in which we see a kind of biomedicalization occur and the ways we think about our bodies is not only different, but the ways that we gatekeep um, who has access to what resources and how as well. And so the book really tries to make those bigger, those bigger claims. That's a good point to end. Thank you for joining us and I'm, I'm looking forward to the book. Thank you very much. I really appreciated talking.